first 10 years has gone by so fast. And we've accomplished um, pretty much the things that we set out to accomplish. But what do you do now? We're going to go after really planting churches. We're going to go after trying to reach more people than we could reach just having a bigger sanctuary. We're going to try to get more people involved in ministry than ever before. We're going to make the next 10 years, this decade, about spiritual growth. And that's what our hope is and that's what our desire is. kingdom of God is not about a church or a man. It is about a king and a kingdom. And how do we grow his kingdom is what this whole thing has been about. The things that I want to do here, I feel like the Lord is saying, I'm going to let you do them. You were obedient to me, and I'm going to give you back something that you've waited for a long time. I'm super duper excited. The vision that I have and the hope that I have our best days are in front of us, and I'm about to rip it like I never have done before as a pastor. So let me tell you how spiritual the conversation is right before I walk up over here. We're watching that, and Jake goes, nice butt shot. So I, <laughs> I didn't realize. I should have got a body double to do that uh, part right there. <laughs> I can't preach now, forget it. Just, um, hey, glad that you are here. Um, good morning and welcome. If you'll grab your notes, we'll jump into uh, our series here real quick. Um, so here, here's what we're doing and, and what the whole, uh, the whole premise is about. This is the 20th year for the church, and we want it to be a real celebratory year. And so we had like um, s- different, for every quarter of the year, we had like a different uh, theme that we were doing, we are doing, um, we wanted to get to uh, the actual 20th anniversary and then do a big celebration. We were even talking about uh, doing fireworks and a big buildup to it. Um, <clears throat> but, um, you know, sometimes just the way that life goes and the things that uh, we found ourselves uh, dealing with and handling and, um, and being involved with, we just realized something had to give. There were just uh, churches that, well, by the way, uh, Pastor Dan had, the, had their first service Last weekend, right? 500 people, his very first service. How about that? So totally excited for those guys. He was just on cloud nine. And, um, and here, how about this, though? So where, where did the people come from? Our attendance last weekend was one of the highest weekends we've had in a couple of years. How? I mean, yeah, figure that right there. So uh, either you're doubling, going down Sunday and coming on Sunday, or vice versa, or Dan's reaching a whole new crowd of people. Uh, down there, which is what's going on. I'm so excited for them, and just throw that out. But that uh, that goes to the idea that um, you know we've planted two churches this year. Uh, there's been multiple things uh, internally um, that, uh, um, that that we've we've gone through. Uh, Pastor Brenda, diff- just different things that uh, if you go here, you're aware of. And so something had to give, and we just said uh, the give is 
um, we can celebrate as well on our 21st anniversary as we would on our 20th. And here's the difference. On our 21st, we can drink. So, uh, <laughs> Jubilee in Hebrew means who's bringing the beer. So that's, uh, no, I'm, uh, It just, uh, it didn't work for us to do it right now. But here, here's what did work. The messages that we were planning during that time, uh, we've kind of gone back and forth like doing a regular series, and then we would do um, a, a series, a short series on, uh, like, like f- from, from the beginning of the church, things that we taught. Uh, like we're in a short series, just a three weeks, and we're in the second week of um, a series talking about what makes Jubilee Jubilee. What, what are the things that we have held on to uh, all that time and that as we go into the future, we'll continue, uh, our church will be about this thing, that we're in favor of this, that we're behind this, that we're excited about uh, this. So last week we talked about leadership, and if you didn't hear it, your, your first thing would be, um, you know, are you talking about your leadership, and you would have misunderstood. Uh, here, here's what I know of being pastor here the whole time. Man, this is a very eclectic church. People coming from many varied backgrounds, uh, some um, very biblically educated, and some with absolute zero experience. Some people uh, with mainline understanding, a high church, traditional, uh, all the sacraments, and some people coming in, and this is all they've ever known. Makes it very eclectic. Uh, how do you pull that group together? And what I've just learned through the years, through the seasons, is just simply this. You can't try to pick eight different things to get people to agree on, but you can do this one thing. If we're going to be here together, let's make Jesus the King of Kings and Lord of... Let's worship Jesus together is what we're going to do, right? It's what we can all agree on. We can all move forward on that. So we talked about um, the leadership message was about Jesus as our leader, and we follow him, and we make everything about that principle. So this week, we're going to talk about Israel, because Israel is one of those things fundamentally... That uh, I'm not talking about uh, Israel Zionism. I'm talking about Israel as being the chosen vessel that God brings his promise to the world through. I'm going to point out to you where we are in space and time. Uh, It used to be when I was uh, a young believer, you'd hear a lot of teaching on the return of Jesus, the rapture of the church, um, end times, things like that. doesn't seem like you hear much about that today. And I, Israel's the barometer for what God's doing in the world and for prophetic events. And although the Bible is really explicit about no man knows that day and that hour except the Father, it does tell us we can recognize seasons that we're in. And I'm going to show you the season that we're in using Israel as a barometer, uh, prophetic from the book of Revelation. How many of you ever read Revelation and are like, I'll never read that again? Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> It's, it is a, it's a uh, difficult book because it's prophetic and it uses word picture language, poetic language that can be very difficult to understand. I'll try to break a little bit of that down for you. And then next week, the final message will just be on grace. On grace. This is a church that teaches grace, not the law, grace. What a difference between those two things. The law is important, but grace, man, is where the life of God is at. And so I think you'll enjoy that message. It's just a short series, and it really reflects just trying to recognize in our 20th year, what's significant about this year, and what do we hold as significant uh, in our our tribe, in our culture? Uh, Jake said something that was really important this morning. I don't know if you caught it. He said, we believe in living in circles, not in rows. Did you hear that right there? 
And I texted him last night. I said, that's maybe, that, that's brilliant. Because it's so easy to come and sit in a row, and that's your great experience at church. When you're in a circle, it goes on. And you're in relationship, and you know people. You're finding community. Folks, say it one more time to you. Find community in our church, please. Take the next step. Become a part of a group, a ministry. It, it can be as simple as going out there and enjoying a cup of coffee and introducing yourself to someone or being open to someone introducing themselves to you. You know, if you grab coffee and go head outside, it's tough sometimes. Amen. All right, so, um, so just that's, that's a rabbit trail. Okay, um, my heart for Israel. <clears throat> let, me, let me do this real quick. Um, my, my first experience going to Israel was in 94, and probably like many of you, uh, as a believer, I, I, I knew what the Old Testament said about Israel. I understood that God made a covenant with Abraham that was eternal. God is eternal. When God makes an eternal promise, it's not for 100 years or 1,000 years. or It's eternal. God does not lie. He cannot lie. He doesn't break his word. The significance of God's covenant with Abraham was this. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and then this sentence, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Jesus came through the lineage of Abraham. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is not another religion. Jesus is not man's attempt to reach God. It's God's way to reach man. He's the bridge. And it's a, a phenomenally important thing to understand that once God did that with Jesus, God wasn't done with Israel. Uh, the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul taught this, that um, we are grafted into that branch. God didn't do away with Israel, we're grafted into it. And then it says this, we share in the blessings or the fatness of the root. So when Israel does good, the church does good. And if Israel suffers, then you'll see that the church suffers. And I can point to many things that, that do that. I'll do a quick little thing here this morning that um, um, people always find interesting. Uh, the U.S., real quick. The U.S., probably uh, Israel's greatest ally in the world is the U.S., but the U.S. also then is able to um, exercise pressure on Israel that no one else can exercise. And from time to time, administrations in our government uh, always, think about this, every president in our lifetimes, uh, part of their platform has always been to bring peace to the Middle East, yes or no? Uh, and their attempts to do that are always, always um, frustrated, always, always, they get tangled up, somehow it comes undone. Here's the real issue. There's not a political solution to a spiritual issue. You've really got to understand this. No human right now has the wisdom to do this. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. But because the U.S. is Israel's greatest ally and because the U.S. has that uh, authority there, uh, the U.S. has tried at different times. Uh, the ambition was to bring peace. And so what we would do is try to get the Jews to trade land for peace. God said that's a no-no. And every time the U.S. has tried to put pressure on Israel to do that, uh, Man, that cause and effect thing that I said, that, that we're, we're, we're grafted into the branch, so if they hurt, we hurt, they do good, we do good. Here, here's the thought. Um, I, I'm going to show you. You're either going to go, it's incredibly, uh, <laughs> uh, it's circumstance that's, you know, million to one shots, pastor, or you're going to see that there's a pattern, meaning simply this. I'm going to show you that at times when the U.S. messed with Israel, um, within hours something would happen in the U.S. And most people just never, if you can look at them one after the other, you can see a pattern. But because they're kind of intermittent, it's like um, raising a child. 
they're growing every day, but when you see them every day, you don't, it's like a relative comes that hasn't seen them for a year and goes, wow, they've grown six inches. You know it's true because you're buying bigger shoe sizes and bigger pants, but you can't detect the growth, right? But a person who only sees it every once in a while can detect it. So what I'm going to do, we live in a, uh, it's like, like the frog in the kettle. The water slowly is turned up and you don't notice it until it's boiling. So I'm going to show you um, like six-month, one-year snippets of mess with Israel and then this happened. And I'll put together a pattern and kind of show you um, what I'm trying to talk about. But then here's where I really want to go today. Uh, I want to talk about where we are in history using Israel as a barometer. I think it'll be uh, uh, interesting for you. And then uh, I want to talk about I'll bless those who bless you and show you cause and effect in, uh, in that too. So uh, this is not the message. I actually pulled this from a message that I taught a little while ago, if you'd like to hear it, um, Jake talked about um, the app. The app contains all of our archived messages. They are free. Um, you could go back and look up these different messages, and you could find uh, the whole of this. Now, I'm just going to give you 10 quick things. I'll read them real quick. This came out of about 40 or 45 that I actually have, um, just keeping track. So I'm going to go back in time uh, using U.S. administrations from uh, 79 to 2015, 79 to 2015. So it's not about a political party because both Democrats and Republicans, it's, a, it's not a political issue, it's a spiritual issue. And I'll just, uh, I'll begin right here. I, I actually need some water though. So the last time the US government refused to veto an anti-Israel resolution at the UN Security Council was in 1979. On March 22nd, 79, the Carter administration Jimmy Carter, the Carter administration chose not to veto a UN resolution number 446. Four days after that, on March 26th, the Egypt-Israel peace treaty was signed in Washington. As a result of that treaty, Israel gave up a tremendous amount of territory. The US was behind Israel trading land for peace. Two days later, so we, we had them sign this accord, this agreement that they would give up land for peace. Two days later, in the U.S., the worst nuclear power plant disaster happened, uh, called Three Mile Island. Okay, so I just say that real quick. Here's, here's where most of you are going to be with this. You're going to go, come on. But if I can point pattern after pattern, then you're either going to have to go, that's the most incredible coincidence of ever, or you're going to have to say, maybe there's something to this idea that if you mess with them, there's a cause and effect. All right, um... October 30th, 1991, President George H.W. Bush opened the Madrid Peace Conference, which brought Israelis and Palestinians together to negotiate for the very first time. In his opening speech, Bush told Israel that, quote, territorial compromise is essential for peace. In other words, you're going to have to give up land for peace. At the exact same time, the perfect storm was brewing in the North Atlantic. This legendary storm traveled 1,000 miles east to west, the wrong direction. They go west to east, not east to west. So it traveled 1,000 miles the wrong direction and sent 35-foot 35 35 waves slamming directly into President Bush's home in Kennebunkport, Maine. Destroyed his home, for those who remember that. They actually made a movie called The Perfect Storm about it. It was that big of a storm. Okay, tremendous, uh, tremendous coincidence. August 23rd, <clears throat> 1992. The Madrid Peace Conference moved to Washington, D.C., and the very next day, Hurricane Andrew, remember that one, hit Florida. 
Hurricane Andrew uh, made landfall in Florida, causing $30 billion in damage. It was the worst natural disaster up to that time in U.S. history. Four, January 16, 1994, two years later, President Clinton, Bill Clinton, met with President Assad of Syria to discuss the possibility of Israel giving up the Golan Heights. Now, don't have time to go into a history lesson, a geography lesson. Go to Israel with me. I'll take you to the Golan Heights. We'll stand there looking into Syria, looking into Lebanon, looking into Jordan, right where those all meet, standing right there, and I will show you why Israel cannot give up the Golan. Most of what we hear on the news is information that, that we just pass through like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Man, the news has an anti-Israeli bias. There's just no other way to say that. And you might sit here right now and think, Pastor, well, you, you have a, an Israeli bias too, but you're positive towards it. I have a biblical bias. I, I'll admit it. You should too. Thank you, two of you right there. Okay, so... Um, 94, President Clinton met with Assad of Syria to discuss the possibility of Israel giving up the Golan Heights. Within 24 hours, the devastating North Ridge earthquake hit Southern California. It was the second worst natural disaster up to that time in U.S. history. Five, on January 21, 1998, four years later, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu arrived at the White House but received a very cold reception. In fact, President Clinton and Secretary of State Madeleine Albright actually refused to have lunch with him. They snubbed him on the cameras to make a point. That exact same day, four hours later, the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke, sending the Clinton presidency into a tailspin from which it would never fully recover. My opinion right now, it bit them two years ago in the election too. It wasn't the only tripping point, but it was a tripping point when they brought up his past while she's trying to say we're anti this and her husband was completely that. And it's not a political statement. That's just simply a fact. Read it for yourself. Uh, number six, September 28, 1998, Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, was working on finalizing a plan which would have had Israel give up approximately 13% of Judea and Samaria. By the way, when you read the term West Bank, the news sanitizes the conflict by using terms that we don't understand. So you'll hear the term West Bank. What is the West Bank? It's Judea and Samaria. It's the land that was given to Israel all the way back to Abraham. Jesus said, go through Judea, Samaria, then to the ends of the earth to bring the good news. So if you want to do Israel a favor, call it by its biblical terms so that we understand at least what we're, what we're asking. To give up 13% of a nation that's the size of New Jersey is significant. Like, if we gave up 13%, we'd give it out on the Eastern Plains. Like, here, here you go. You can actually have 40%. <laughs> Leave us Aurora and West, and you can have... <laughs> on that precise day, Hurricane George slammed into the Gulf Coast with wind gusts of 175 miles an hour. Incredible coincidence... Number seven, May 3rd, 1999, Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat was supposed to hold a press conference to declare the creation of a Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital. So uh, the peace initiative that's been out there now for uh, a decade and a half is to divide the land of Israel into two states. So one belongs to Palestinians, one belongs to Israel, and that they split Jerusalem as the capital. It's actually predicted in the book of Ezekiel, by the way. If you ever want to read that, it talks about dividing the city and the land right down the middle and then the judgment that comes because of it. Um, <clears throat> so on May 3rd, 1999, Pal Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat was supposed to hold a press conference to declare the creation of a Palestinian state with Jerusalem as the capital. 
on that precise day, not the next day, not two weeks later, that day, the most powerful tornadoes ever recorded in the U.S. ripped through Oklahoma and Kansas. At one point, one of the tornadoes actually had a recorded wind speed of 316 miles an hour, the fastest ever recorded. Uh, April 30th, 2003, the roadmap to peace, that was the new term, that had been de developed by the so-called quartet was presented to Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon by U.S. Ambassador Kurtzer. Over the next seven days, the U.S. was hit by a staggering 412 tornadoes. It was the largest tornado cluster ever recorded up to that time. In 2005, President George W. Bush, the son of George H.W. Bush, convinced Israel that it was necessary to remove all of the Jewish settlers out of Gaza and turn it over entirely to the Palestinians. You might have watched that on TV. They showed that live on TV. According to the New York Times, the very last of the settlers were evacuated. Listen to this. The last of the Jewish settlers were evacuated on August 23, 2005. On that precise day, a storm that would be given the name Katrina started forming over the Bahamas. The city of New Orleans has still not fully recovered from the damage that storm caused. It ranked as the costliest natural disaster in all of U.S. history up to that time. Here's the last one. May 19, 2011, Barack Obama told Israel that there must be a return to the pre-1967 borders. Three days later, on May 22nd, a half mile wide, think of this, a half mile wide EF5 multiple vortex tornado ripped through Joplin, Missouri. Do you remember seeing that on the TV? So here, here's, here's what uh, the explanation is that it has to do with climate change. No, no don't laugh at it. So I'm, I'll make a statement that you, you, this, you may get mad at me right now. Climate change is going on. But we'd probably disagree on the root cause of it. So I would say to you, the stuff that's happening in our world today may not have as much to do with you as it has to do with prophecy. I would say to you that it doesn't matter who the person in office is, that God is God and what God said is going to happen, and it can't be changed because we vote a particular person in or out of office. And we tend to see our problems as political, and our problems are spiritual, folks. And we think we can address it by a vote or a, a, a constituency that's a, a, a certain this or that. And the truth of the matter is, man, we, we have a spiritual problem in our nation, not a political problem in our nation. A spiritual problem manifesting as a political problem right now. It is a curse to have a people divided against themselves. Jesus said it, a house divided against itself cannot stand. It's a curse that's going on. How you like me now? Yeah. Uh, there's... I literally had 40 or 45 of those things that brought it up to, uh, in time and space, to current events. But that's really not the heart of the message. My point is just simply that, um, that the Bible says we're grafted into the branch. God did not replace Israel with the church. That's called replacement theology. And there are churches, mostly main mainline denominations, that teach Israel. God, God has rejected Israel and that the church now is spiritual Israel. And all of God's work goes on through the church. And that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says God has not rejected Israel. Their hearts have been hardened for the time of the Gentiles. That's what it says. So that you and I can come into the kingdom. But before God's done, he opens their eyes up and he reconciles both the church and the Jews together. It's a powerful thought. And most people today let the news influence how they feel about 
and don't realize what the Bible says about. I know some of you are getting very uncomfortable right now. So let me back off and do this. Um, I, my first experience in Israel was 1994. And probably like the majority of you, I understood about Israel. Like I was in favor of Israel, but I was not like, it was not a dedicated thing in my heart. And so uh, here's what, here's what uh, Israel's very smart about this. They let pastors, if you're a pastor, they, they call it a familiarization trip, a fam trip. And they make it super affordable for a pastor to go to Israel with this hope that if you go, when you become a pastor, you'll take people back with you. So my next trip, a couple, few days, be my 14th trip. It works. <laughs> Their plan works, man. I mean, this will be probably uh, somewhere between six and 700 people that we've taken to Israel. And my hope is to keep doing it as long as to take you and to show you for yourself why what you believe is true and it's right and it's there. Uh, it's a huge thing for Chris and I personally. Um, so 94, my pastor, I'm on a staff in northern Colorado as a youth pastor. And uh, Israel offers the opportunity for the staff to go, and our pastor decides our whole staff, 20 of us, are going to go. Now, Chris and I, were, we, I, I don't know, like most of you, we probably had like a soft spot for Israel and our understanding, but we were not like, you know, like, oh, this is great. So when he said we're all going to go, Chris and I, we didn't want to go. We were kind of freaking out, and we were like, um, you know, if we're going we're gonna to die over there if we go there. And, <laughs> Why should we have to go over there? So I went to the pastor and I said this. One of us has to stay behind and pastor the church. I'll do it. <laughs> and he goes, no, I've got this figured out. You're going. So I went the next week. And I said, we're the only ones with little children. And we have twins. Can you imagine we die and someone has to take care of those twins? We need to stay here. He said, fly in whoever you need to fly in to watch your family. We're going on this trip. I tried two or three more times. He wouldn't hear of it. Off we go to Israel. And we were not excited about it at all. And I'll give you, here's, here's probably the, uh, my first, um, you know, on a 12-day trip, my first six days. You ever see the movie Vacation with Chevy Chase when he goes to look at the Grand Canyon? You remember that, that scene? So they're like, you know, he's got all these other things going on. And he gets to the Grand Canyon. He stands on the edge. Okay, let's go. And, and off they, that's probably how I was in Israel, to be honest. The first six days, I'm like, that's great, let's go. What's for lunch? My heart's not in it. I'm just, I'm marking time. Five days, four days, three days, two days. Um, we end up at the end of the trip in Jerusalem because it's kind of the highlight. Our hotel is overlooking the old city, the old city walls, Dome of the Rock, the, the, the Wailing Wall. Um, all the things that I've seen in pictures that, that are meaningful to me, but I, my heart's not. You know, how do you make your heart do something? You know, God's got to do something. All right, nine-hour time difference, and they're ahead of us. So uh, their middle of the day is our night, and vice versa. Our middle of the day is their night. And I'm messed up on my sleep. I want to go to sleep at 6 o'clock, and I'm waking up at 2 o'clock. And I get up. It's probably 2.30, 3 o'clock. Chris is still sleeping. I turn on the TV, and everything's in Hebrew. That doesn't help. So I shut it off, and I open the, the door, and we have a balcony. It's probably the width of this this little ledge on the platform. And uh, so I, I just go out and I'm looking. I'm, I'm just kind of pacing. And, uh, you know, I'm a pastor, so I just, I'll pray. That's what pastors do. So I, I, I know the Bible well enough to know it's, you know, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's the apple of God's eye. I, I, so I'm just praying, God, this place has such conflict. There's such turmoil here. 
God, there never seems to be an answer. They're just, it's on and on. God, you tell us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So I'm just, I, I, I pray for the peace. I say the words, I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Nothing's going on inside me. And I'm kind of just out there and I'm pacing back and forth and my mind's kind of wondering and I'm looking and praying. And all of a sudden, man, God speaks to me. Now, when I say that, no audible voice, no angel, no burning bush, nothing. In my heart, I hear the Father say, I am the peace of Jerusalem. And suddenly, I look back at that city and I realized all these scriptures came flooding into my mind that when he returns, it is from this place that he will rule and reign. That the nations of the world every year will go there to celebrate what God has done. That there will be no peace until the government rests upon his shoulder. No equity for any nation truly until Jesus is the one who takes care of what's going on in the world. And then in that same prophecy in Isaiah, it uses this term. He is the prince of He's the peace of the world, not just Jerusalem. And I'm standing there, and this is happening in my heart, and my heart begins to break, and I look at this city, and now I don't see anything modern, and I don't see anything ancient. All of a sudden, now I see the heart of God trying to reach out to mankind and choosing this as ground zero where he did it. And I begin to weep over this city and weep for the people of this city and for the people of the world. It's a pinpoint is all that it is. Never misunderstand. God doesn't love a Jewish person more than anybody else. Jesus died for all of mankind. But he pinpointed this as the place where the promise was going to come through. Of course the devil fights it then. And has tried to annihilate the Jews century after century after century. So I get this heart for Israel and it changes everything. All right. Why I continue to return to Israel? Real quick, I love to look back. I love history. I love the Bible. I love what I believe. I love to read about those things and understand about those things and see new things. And when I go there, every time I see something I've never seen before. I I would dare say most of you probably don't do the exact same trip with the exact same itinerary year after year after year. I do and can tell you it's never gotten boring for me. There are certain things that I can pass on for sure. The bus ride, the plane ride. But when I'm there and God moves in my heart, man, it's worth any amount of money. I love to look forward, not just back, but forward. I love prophecy. I love to understand the promises. It it lets us know that God knows where we are in space and time when a prophecy comes true. It legitimizes the Bible when a prophecy comes true. Right? So I love to look at prophecy and the world through God's eyes and Jesus' return and where it's going to be. So real quick, it's just about Israel and prophecy, and it's a real two-point message. Here's the first fill in the blank, where we are in history, in time and in space. I cannot point to a day and an hour, but I can show you the season that we live in. I'm going to use Revelations chapter 17, 7 through 11. It's a little difficult to understand, so before your brain just goes, let give me a chance to help you understand it. I'll read it. I've got a diagram that uh, um, our our creative arts team developed and put together. You don't know how good a creative arts team we have. The people that are behind the scenes working on stuff that you never think about, they are so, so good. Okay, uh, Revelation 17, 7 through 11 reads this way. Uh, Why are you so amazed? The angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads. Now, here's the problem when you read this. It uses uh, word symbols, 
um, it, poetic language. It's very diff. Most of us, we just read it, we don't get it, so it's easier to close it and go to the book of John than it is to try to understand this. Okay, so I will tell you, he's even admit, see, the, the writer of the book sees these things, but he doesn't understand them. How much of a disadvantage are we at? We're not the ones writing it. He couldn't understand. It took an angel to explain it to him. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw, now pay attention to this, the beast you saw was once alive but isn't now, and yet he will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. So here's what it's describing. It's describing a spirit, not a human. When a human dies, done. Your spirit does not come back, man. It, it goes in front of God, and of a believer, you're there, and if you're not, you are not. It's a heaven and hell issue. This is not a human, it's a spirit because it's alive on the earth at one point and then it goes away. And then it comes back and then it goes away and it comes back and it goes away. It exists, this spirit, it exercises itself through governments, through nations that are powerful and it uses those nations for this purpose to fight against God's promise for the Jews. I'm going to show you this, okay? So stay with me. The people who belong to this world, now get who it's talking about. The people who belong to this world whose names were not written in the book of... How many of you have your names written in the book of life? Dude, if you don't know, today's the day, man. This is, no, I, I hope, no hoping, okay? The people who belong to this world whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, look at this, will be amazed, shocked, incredulous. They will not be able to believe or understand at the reappearance of this beast who has died. Here's what it's saying. People who do not understand who God is, what God is doing, who have never been taught this or understand God's purposes, they're going to see this thing that's been on the earth before. Not in their lifetime, but through history they recognize this thing has been here before and they're going to go, how could this happen on our watch? We thought we got rid of this thing. We thought this thing was dealt with once and for all. And the Bible's saying this thing comes back every so often. And it's going to shock people who are not prepared for it. This calls for a mind with what? So it, that means, man, it's, you've, God's got to open this to us so we understand it. And then he explains it. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They're seven kingdoms. It, it, the spirit has showed up seven different times according to this, or will show up seven different times, uh, operating from world powers. And it's there for a while, and it exercises itself in a dominance, but then it's defeated by God, and it goes back down to the pit, but then it resurfaces again. So he's just explaining it. It's, it's poetic language. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They also represent what? Seven kings. Kings represent kingdoms. Okay. Five kings. This is important because here's the explanation. Five kings have already fallen. So at the time this is written, stay with me real quick. It was written 2,000 years ago. At the time this was written, five kingdoms have already come and gone. The spirit has already come on the earth five times. It's been there, disappeared. Been there, disappeared. Five times. The sixth now reigns. 2,000 years ago, what was the world power of the time? Rome. Rome was the world power. What did Rome do to Jerusalem and to Israel? Oh, they destroyed it, leveled it. They did what these other 
kingdoms had done to the Jews. Okay? So look what he says. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth now reigns. The seventh is yet to come. Look, at the, look how accurate this is. But his reign will be what? Okay? And then finish with this right here. The scarlet beast that was but is no longer is actually an eighth king. He is like the other seven, and he too is headed for destruction. Okay, so let me, let me pull this up and try to show this to you. So this is a picture of what we just read, and the writer, John the Apostle is the writer of this. He's having a vision, and what he sees is this big picture, and he points out prophetically that before his time, there were five nations that existed that were the world-dominating powers that had already come to power and fallen in history. Here's those nations. It's in your notes. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Egypt was the very first one from recorded history that was the world-dominating power. The Pharaoh was the name of their king. What did Egypt do to Israel? Put them in slavery, remember? Tortured them. Tried to destroy them. Let them go and then backed them up at the Red Sea and was going to drive them into the sea to drown them. But God miraculously rescued them and drowned Pharaoh's army. Uh, the next one that fell in world history uh, was Assyria. Pilaster was their king. Assyria, huh, they attacked Israel. Read the Old Testament. They, they fought against Israel. Babylon, what did Babylon do to Israel? Brought them into captivity. Uh, that was the first time the temple was tore down. They used it as a, uh, Israel as they used them as slaves and, and tried to increase their kingdom by taking in people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the Babylonian kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was one of their big kings. Uh, the next one in world history, Persia. Daniel, the prophet, existed during the reign of Persia. Remember, all of these were world powers in their time. They lasted for a few hundred years, but then they would fall. Every one of them has this common denominator. They persecuted the Jews. So God got involved. So John the writer just says simply, what you're seeing is five kingdoms. They were the world powers before us. Uh, they persecuted the Jews, but they have fallen. But it's really not about a kingdom. It's about a spirit that's there, and then it's not. And then it's there, and then it's not. And then he makes this, and there is a king that is right now. We all pointed that out. That was Rome, and they called their king Caesar. So somebody walked up to me last night and said, uh, you forgot Nero. <laughs> ah. All of their kings were Caesars. At the time of this writing, it was Caesar Augustus. But there was Octavian. There, there was Caligula. There was ne they were all wicked, and Rome existed for 500 years as a world power. And during that time, it persecuted the Jews. It put them as slaves and, and put the boot on the neck. The last one, you studied about it in school, I'll guarantee you, Greece. Uh, Greece's big king, their big leader, was something the great. Oh, oh, come on. Alexander the Great. Are you staying with me right now? Okay. Those five existed before John wrote this, and he just points out, it wasn't those kingdoms in particular. It was the spirit that showed up, operated through those kingdoms. It's defeated, and it goes down to the pit, but then it comes back. And then he points out there's a sixth king that's operating right now. What happens to Rome? Rome falls, but after, uh, 63 AD, they level Jerusalem, and that starts the diaspora where they kick the Jews out for 2,000 years. The Jews cannot go back to their homeland. 
And in our day, 1948, Israel reforms. And the most amazing miracle is that the Jews had kept themselves Jewish so that they had a homeland to go back to. How did God do that? That's an unbelievable story in and of itself. But then he points out uh, this. Five are fallen, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. One is right now, which is Caesar, and then he makes a prophecy. One is yet to come, but it says he'll only be there for a short time. In our lifetime, there was a world-dominating power that persecuted the Jews, and it only lasted for a short time, and it was Hitler, yes or no? Now, he claimed it to be a thousand-year Reich that barely lasted a little more than ten years. I mean, the Bible predicts a short... Here's the deal. You're either going to look at it and go, you're, you see that? You don't? So maybe the most significant one, though, would be this. So the five fallen, Rome, Hitler, these are all history, right? It mentions that there's an eighth one to come that's like the others, but his doom is already predicted. So where are we in history and time? This eighth one that will persecute the Jews one more time is the Antichrist. It's predicted in the Bible, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel, uh, Zechariah. Uh, Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24. Paul talked about it. Peter talked about it. John talked about it in Revelation. It's all through the Bible, who this person is, what they're going to do. So let me just sum up who they are real quickly. We live in crazy times right now, yes or no? And even if you don't believe in climate change, will you agree with this, that our weather is wacky? Will you at least agree with that? Here's what I would say to you. The Bible prophesies, read Matthew 24, it prophesies that there will be earthquakes in diverse crazy places like never before and weather. Weather. Weather is a form of God's, some people would say is judgment. Here's what I say it is. When God pulls himself back from, it allows things to happen. Uh, maybe the greatest example biblically that I could give you, Samson. Samson, the Bible says, the Spirit of God withdrew from him and he knew it not. So he went out to do what he had always done, but God suddenly wasn't with him and he didn't know. And what happened to Samson? The U.S. has always had God, but man, we've done everything we can to kick God out. And I don't think God is judging us right now. That is not what I think. Here's what I think. I think we're pushing him away. And as he pulls back, it allows a vacuum of evil in. And like a frog in the kettle, you can't see it because you're in it every day. But if you just look back on history and mark where we are, yes or no, things are getting worse or better. What do you say? This eighth one, man, in space and time, the season we're in, there's only one more king to come that operates out of the spirit, and it's the Antichrist. And here's what the Bible says about him. He's going to come on the scene at a time when the world is in terrible shape. And he's going to, for seven years, operate. Three and a half of those seven years, this is what Daniel prophesies in the time of trouble. Three and a half of those seven years are going to be three and a half of the best years the earth is financially, structurally, governmentally, abundance. It's going to be three and a half years of miraculous times. The Bible says he'll actually perform miracles and it says even the very elect of God would be fooled. If God doesn't shorten the days. So there's going to be three and a half years. This guy's going to come on the scene at a time when the world is in utter chaos and he's going to bring peace. And one of the places he'll bring peace is the Middle East. Listen to this. When no one else has been able to do it, there's going to be a terrible war there. 
I think it's nuclear. And this guy will step in and bring peace in a way that no one else could. And he's going to look like he is pro-Israeli. He reigns for seven years, three and a half or great years. At the middle of the three and a half, he actually turns against Israel with the nations of the earth. And they fight against Israel. And God supernaturally stands up during that time to defeat this guy. But listen to this. He's got a seven-year reign. Three and a half are good. Three and a half are terrible. And the last three and a half, he persecutes the Jews like never before. But now I need to tell you something that you need to know. We're grafted into the branch. None of those things were yet to happen like they are now. And the church will be persecuted during this time. Now, here's what people... So this is where people are like, uh, okay, pastor, uh, when's the rapture? And... Uh, <laughs> You know, so, so some are like, man, I'm a pre-trib person, and that means, dude, the sky is blue, I'm driving the Mercedes, God calls, and up I drive to heaven. Woo, it's good. And some are uh, mid-tribbers. At the three-and-a-half-year break, they get the three-and-a-half good years and not the three-and-a-half bad years, and right at the middle of it, off they go. And some are post, like, uh, you know, they're negative about everything, so that's, that's just... And some are pan It'll all pan out one way or the other, right? Yeah, I know. I get it. You want to know what I believe? Do you? The Bible says that the church is not appointed to wrath. We will not suffer God's wrath and judgment. We escape that. But it never says we don't go through trouble. In fact, Jesus said just the opposite. In this world, you will have trouble. I think the church will be here to see some of these things take place. I think when Jesus says in Matthew 24 that uh, he, he teaches about the ten virgins and half are wise and half fall asleep, that represents the church. And half will be ready and half will not. I think we will be here to see some of these things take place. When God pours out his judgment, I don't think we're here. I think that's the rapture of the church. But I think we could be here to see some of these things take place. So look, even if you disagree with me, would it not be wise to prepare like I could be right? Because Jesus says even the elect would be fooled if God didn't shorten that time. The mission of each nation simply was to destroy the Jews. Here's what the devil is up to. God made a promise to Abraham, I will bless you. I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. My promise is with you. I'm going to give you a child, and through him, that's Isaac. They couldn't, their faith just shook, so they tried to do God's plan in the natural, and they have Ishmael, and Isaac and Ishmael have been fighting each other ever since, yes or no? And you think it's a problem that a president or a congress can solve. Only God's going to be able to reconcile the Arab and the Jew together. You just need to know that. And you can say, man, you are an old-fashioned caveman. Yep. <laughs> Let me give you the second one. I will bless those who bless you. Genesis 12, 3, uh, probably a familiar scripture. God just says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. Cause and effect. Cause and effect. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. I went through some of those things with our government. Let me give you one that you can see in our day and age. Mainline denominations. 
I'm not picking on you. I'm not saying anything ugly to you. I was a Catholic kid growing up. Let me just say this to you. In our day and in our time, when I was a little boy, my great-grandmother, I'd go spend the summers with her in Bastrop, Louisiana. Talk about podunk, man. One stoplight, and it flashed. It never did turn red. It just flashed. It was just country, country, country. She was a Methodist, and she loved Jesus. I remember her taking me to church with her. I was a Catholic kid and never experienced this. They did communion by passing the cup down the rows, and everybody would drink from the cup. Which I know you're like, but it was, it was, even as a little kid, I recognized the holiness of what was going on there and the power of, you know, when God shows up, people know. And it was, she loved Jesus, and that church loved Jesus. My great-grandmother died in the early 70s, and... Um, Man, if she knew what her church was like today, she would be so distraught. Mainline denominations over the last 20 years have picked Israel to divest from, to denounce publicly, yes or no. If you're in the know, think about this. Mainline denominations have totally taken Israel and castigated them. And I just want to ask you this question. What's going on in mainline denominations all over America today? Are they do they're dying, is exactly right. People are leaving them left and right. They are turning churches over because they no longer can uh, support those churches. Now, you can sit in here. Maybe you came from it and you think, I'm picking on you. I am not. I, that is not what I'm doing. I am making a statement on a hierarchy position. Cause and effect. I'll bless those who bless you. Curse those who curse you. Many mainline denominations have chosen this anti Jew, it's an anti-Semitic stance is what it is, and they're paying a price for it. And now I'm going to give you a comparison. Do whatever you want to with it. Look at this little church right here. Look at this pastor. I hold no advanced degree. I'm not a PhD. I'm not a THD. I don't claim ever to stand in this pulpit and show a degree giving me the authority to be here. I don't think I'm anything. I don't set us up as something wonderful. We're really a group of people who have to agree on this one thing, that we're going to love Jesus together. The one thing that marks us simply is this. People will say, God is with that bunch of people. And thank God, because it's really all we have. All the missions we do, the buildings we've built, the churches that we've planted, all of those things, whatever. You want to know the truth about our church? While we're doing all of that busy work stuff, we have a little Jewish carpenter building the foundation of this church. And that's been our hope. And somewhere in my stance that's uncompromised on this issue, God has seen fit to do something with this church for some reason. And it's not because I'm a great teacher or I hold advanced degrees or we have authors on our staff or we have... Thousands and thousands of square feet. Dude, I, every time I get done with the service, I stand up. I watch our counselors are trying to counsel with 15,000 people around. There's no place to go. And yet, here we are. I'll trade my 20,000 square feet. I'm sorry, I wouldn't trade my 20,000 square feet for someone else's 150,000 square feet if I have to give up God. I'll put up with all the parking issues. I'll put up with all the lack of as long as God moves in our midst. And I'll proudly make that stance. Now, 
like me, you're probably like tolerant where I was in 94. You're tolerant of what I'm saying, but you're not proactive in what I'm saying. And you're missing maybe one of the most fundamental things in our Bible that you need to believe in. And what will I do with it? Keep preaching. Keep showing. Keep trying to point to. I think there's something very significant to what I'm teaching right now and to what God wants to do in your life. Every year that we go to Israel, uh, we try to do something to be a blessing to that nation. I found churches there that are messianic, believing in Jesus' churches, and I've tried to support them. Ministries that deal with the refugees coming in. It looks like Ellis Island is some of those places. Refugees come into Israel with nothing more than the clothes on their back, and they need to learn how to speak the language and be educated and be fed and be clothed. Man, we've tried to support those ministries. We've tried to support our own missionaries that go over there. We, we sent our first missions team to Israel just a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Jonathan Rebecca sent our first missions team out, our first seed, not as tourists, but as missionaries into that country. Our son, Daniel, one of the pastors here, when he went to YWAM, picked Israel as his place to go and do his outreach. It's, it's everything that we stand for and that we are. We're going to go again in just a few days, and I want to be a blessing to the nation. So every year I give a chance for people who want to participate in giving towards the nation to do so. Notice there's no emotion right now. We're not playing Hava Nagila in the background. I'm not wearing a prayer shawl. I'm talking to you straight up. No manipulation. Either you get, I'll bless those who bless you, or you don't. If you don't, you don't. I love you. May God open your eyes. May you open your heart. But if you do get it, do you want to be a blessing to this nation? Whatever you designate for Israel, we'll give to Israel. Don't take your tithe and give that. That's not the way to do it. It doesn't help. This is something that's above and beyond. You have time to pray about it and think about it. If you want to do it, you're prepared to do it today, do it. Mark on the check or on the envelope for Israel. If you need to go home and think about it and do it over the internet, it's great. If you want to pray about it till next week, it's fine. One week, I'm going to open this up, this weekend and next weekend. And I'll give it all away when we're there. If you want to be a part of it, man, I would encourage you to do that thing right there. It's so profound and it's so good. And it's so, it's so good before God. But as always, man, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. The message is not about an offering for Israel. The message is about understanding biblical principles. Where we are in space and time and what you're going to believe to be true. You know what I'd really love? If you've never been, go with me sometime. Let me show you for yourself. Let me let you smell it and touch it and taste it and see it. I promise you, you will not come back the same. Every time I teach about it, your heart will beat faster. I don't want you to tolerate me. I want you to cheer me when I talk about this. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. May what I say, Father God, not be a stumbling stone to the people that you love so dearly. Anything, Father, that's of me and not of Jesus, hide it behind the cross right now. Let the only thing seen of what I said be your words and your truth in your heart. Father, open our eyes. Soften our hearts. 
Help us to get it. Father, where we formed our opinions based on the opinion of men, show us. Where we've believed things, Father God, because we have so many things right in our face trying to tell us this is what this means and this is what this is, and we're not looking to you to find out what this is. God, help us to separate those things. Father, be merciful to us right now. And we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The book of Revelations ends with this blessing. All who look forward to the return of Jesus have a special blessing. The spirit and the bride say, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. In the meantime, Father... We'll take communion to remind ourselves that you are our groom. That you are our Lord. You are our Savior, the lover of our soul. We'll take communion today to remind ourselves, Father, that while we're waiting, you're preparing. Church, did you hear that? While we're waiting, he's preparing. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. If it were not true, I would not say it. While we wait, he prepares. And while we wait, we remind ourselves. Father, we remind ourselves of how much you love us and who you are and who we belong to. Work it in our hearts, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.